our text for today comes from John 18, 28 through 40. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat at the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, reported Pilate, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. All right. How's everybody doing? Good? Good, good. I'm going to raise this up a little bit. All right. Good morning. It's good to be with you in church uh, this morning as we begin a brand new series on politics. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, who's excited? It's good. Uh, the name of this series might sound strange to you. It's polis. It, is, it comes from a Greek word, which is, surprisingly enough, polis. Uh, that is the word that we get where we derive our word politics. Poli- a polis was a Greek city-state. If you're familiar with Greek or Roman history, you might know this. So originally, the word politics just meant the way that people structured their lives in a city. It was kind of a very formal word. Uh, uh, Politics was simply the business of the city, right? How do you, uh, how do you govern the business of the city? It, that's politics, which is nice, right? In our context, that definition sounds almost quaint, I think, because that is not at all the way we think of the word politics, is it? Uh, I said just a second ago that we're beginning a three-week series on politics and that subtle sense of anxiety that is probably slowly rising in your chest when I say that word, is an indication that this word that we have, politics, has been laid down with all kinds of different meanings, hasn't it? Uh, It has been imbued with a kind of religious fervor in our culture, right? People care about politics. We don't discuss politics in in our context right now. We fight over it, right? We are not just members of a politi- one political party or another. We are devotees to an ideology that uh, pervades nearly everything about us. This is, w- this is our culture. Uh, this is uh, a, just uh, a feeling that is kind of in the air. It is the climate that is manufactured by our current 
political system. It is the types of feelings and the emotions that are, that are put out into the culture to make you feel a certain way. And as we head into a major election cycle in our country, the primaries are just a couple months away. You've seen mainly Democratic candidates kind of crisscrossing the state over the last few weeks. If you were really motivated, you could, like, could go have a conversation with one of them if you wanted. But things are starting to heat up, aren't they? And in a year from now, I'm afraid that they're going to be a little too hot. <laughs> so I wanted to get out in front. <laughs> And that's why we're doing the series now. But uh, you might find this interesting. I was reading up on just our, our current political climate this week, and the Wall Street Journal tells us that uh, over the next year, $10 billion, that's B, that's a B, that's billion dollars will be spent on marketing and advertising around, uh, around this election. And do you know what? You know what? Nearly every penny of that $10 billion is being scientifically targeted at your cerebral cortex, right? In order to stir up your emotions, in order to confirm your biases, in order to challenge your sense of justice and fairness, just to get you all riled up. This is what that $10 billion purpose is. So that we can valorize one candidate on, on, on our side and then we can demonize a candidate on the other side, right? This is what the $10 billion is for. And this has been proven. It's, 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 uh, it's present, just on the surface. Political advertising's primary purpose is to stir up in us a sense of moral outrage. And this is because those negative emotions that you feel around these issues are more powerful and more motivating than positive ones. Just watch any cable news program or pull up nearly any politically tinged Facebook article. And what you will find there is not a thorough and detailed uh, measured debate about the issues, right? Instead, you will find something that is tailor-made to stir up your emotions by vilifying one side and valorizing another. This is, this is the climate of our current day. And it is only getting worse. It's only getting worse. It's not getting better. Divisive political rhetoric like this has worked its way down into nearly every aspect of our lives. It used to be that the political rhetoric was kind of left to the political sphere, and once every four years or once every two years, things would get a little hot and then things would die down, right? That is not the case today. Because of political advertising and because of marketing and because of the 24-hour news cycle and the need to sell more advertising dollars, everything is politicized. Everything. It's even worked its way all the way down into Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Any big Dancing with the Stars fans in the room? Say, I appreciate that. That's good. My mom is a huge Dancing with the Stars fan, and if she were here, she would like this analogy. But it has even worked its way down into Dancing with the Stars. I've watched one episode, and I was like, I don't think I can do this. But, <laughs> but my wife sent me this little bit of information this week. Does, uh, Sean Spicer, does anybody know who Sean Spicer is? He's the former press secretary for Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump fired him like three days into uh, his time. But anyways, uh, he is apparently a contestant on Dancing with the Stars. There he is in all his glory. Uh, he's, a, he's a candidate on Dancing with the Stars. Uh, and 
but apparently he really wants to win Dancing with the Stars. Like, this is something he's really into, how the mighty have fallen, right? From press secretary to Dancing with the Stars. Um, but after his performance the other night, after his performance the other night, there, there were a series of tweets. So follow me here. Um, and one of the tweets that he received was from the former governor of uh, Mike Huckabee. And Mike Huckabee tweeted an encouragement to him. And so Spicer responded with this tweet to Mike Huckabee. He says, thank you, Governor Huckabee. Clearly, the judges aren't going to be with me. Let's send a message to hashtag Hollywood that those of us who stand for hashtag Christ won't be discounted. May God bless you. So now dancing with the stars of all places is political. I show you this simply to illustrate the fact that we have taken things a a, a bit too far, right? Using the name of Jesus as a kind of political football in order to get votes on a reality television show. (laughs) I think we've lost the path, haven't we? And I can tell you unequivocally that Jesus does not care who wins Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) And... But on the other side of it, I am very confident that Jesus is not a fan of that shirt that John Spicer is wearing. I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to formally outlaw fluorescent green blouses at Grace Community Church. How's that sound? But no, call me crazy, right? Call me crazy. But I think Jesus has far more to say to us in our day about the way his followers should engage in our current political climate than this. I think he has far more to say. In fact, I think there is so much we can learn from the Gospels as Jesus navigates his own very politically contentious world. So that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. That's what we're going to do. We are going to look to Jesus to help us to understand how to follow him faithfully in our politically contentious world. Today, uh, we are going to discuss a teaching that Jesus gives in in our teaching text for today about two kingdoms. Next week, we're going to look at how Jesus talks about and addresses power and authority in the world. And then our last week, we're going to talk about being a people of honor in a culture of dishonor. So that's where we're headed over the next few weeks. But my hope is that over this sermon series, we can kind of sit at the feet of Jesus as his students, as his disciples, as his apprentices, as his followers, and to learn how to faithfully live as his witnesses in the world while not giving in to a culture of moral outrage. That's my hope. By not allowing ourselves to be manipulated by all those billions of dollars of advertising. And can I just tell you that this is not easy? might sound easy. I'm going to try to make it palatable at least, but it is not easy. It turns out to be deeply spiritual because this culture has its teeth in us. It has its teeth in us. It has its teeth in me. And Jesus wants to free us from the cable news outrage circus. I really believe that. Jesus wants to free us from that. He wants to free us to live as his kingdom citizens in the world. And what I think we will find in this series is that if we truly embrace what it means to be his kingdom citizens, and I hope, uh, and that that will change the way we engage politically. And I hope to show you that that is exactly what Jesus models for us in his political interactions in the Gospels. Because, believe it or not, Jesus lived in an even more politically contentious time than we live in today. He really did. Jesus lived in a time of military occupation by the Romans. 
a time where homegrown terrorists, people called zealots, were running around assassinating political leaders and government sympathizers and tax collectors. This was the world Jesus lived in. Just for the record, Jesus recruited both zealots and tax collectors to be part of his disciples. In Jesus' day, the religious believed that their way of life was under attack by those who sought to control and minimize the worship of the one true God. Right? Judea in the first century was a powder keg. It was ready to blow. It eventually did some 50 years later in AD 70 when the Romans burnt Jerusalem to the ground and destroyed the temple. And unsurprisingly, in this context, in this uh, powder keg of a situation, people really wanted to pin Jesus down, right? People really wanted to pin Jesus down, as, any, as we want to pin down any influential person in our day, right? They wanted to figure out which side he was on. They wanted to use his growing influence to bolster their position. They wanted to use him to win a reality television show. Kind of. But Jesus at every turn refuses to be pinned down. And because he refuses to be defined by the political conversation of his day, he was able to maintain a kind of prophetic distance. A posture that allowed him to challenge and critique all of the systems that he saw as unjust and ungodly. And he did this so effectively that, they, that, that both sides of the political conversation eventually conspired together to kill him. Right? And in our teaching text for today, we get a snapshot of a conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, the Roman leader in the region. So, a political figure, if there ever was one. A man tasked with overseeing the Roman law and order, with maintaining the status quo in, the pro- in this province. Now, a little bit of context here is helpful in order to understand our teaching text. Just before this episode that we read this morning uh, of Jesus talking to Pontius Pilate, Jesus had been taken into custody by the Jewish ruling authority or the religious authority of his day. And they wanted to execute him as a blasphemer, right? But under Roman law, Jewish authority was not allowed to carry out capital punishment. They needed, they could, uh, they could try people and they could punish people, but they couldn't kill people. The Romans said, this is where we draw the line. So if the Hebrews wanted to execute someone, they needed Roman approval, which they hated, right? So Jesus is brought before Pilate, this provincial leader, in this kind of strange kangaroo court situation. And that's where we pick up our teaching text for today. I'm going to look specifically at verses 33, beginning in verses 33 through 37 here. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there. Beginning in verse 33, it says this, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, and this is what we need to pay attention to this morning. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate here is trying to figure out if Jesus is a threat to Roman authority in the region. That's what he's doing. He's trying to figure out if Jesus' presence in Israel 
uh, is a threat to Roman rule, Roman authority. Because if Jesus says he is a king, then the Jews, uh, is the king of the Jews, then obviously that has political ramifications, right? Because Israel was an earthly kingdom. It meant that he, uh, it meant that Jesus, if he says, I'm the king of the Jews, it meant that Jesus wanted to rally an army, that he wanted to kick out the Romans, that he wanted to establish a kingdom of which he would be the king. And Rome would not be in power any longer. And these are the type of people, these kind of political insurrectionists that would spring up in Israel from time to time. Jesus is just, uh, in Pilate's mind, Jesus might just be one in a long line of political insurrectionists. And Rome was quite fond of killing these people. They did it all the time. They killed rebels before Jesus, and they, were, they kept on killing rebels after Jesus. They did it time and time again. And so Pilate asked Jesus in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Another way of looking at this question might be, do I need to kill you right now? Seriously. And what does Jesus say? What does he say? In verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, says Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus, in effect, says, yes, I am a king. He doesn't deny it. But my kingdom is not of this world. Instead of being established uh, by amassing an army, my kingdom is going to be established in another way. Right? And notice here, Jesus uh, most certainly says that he is a king with a kingdom. My kingdom, he says, is from another place. Meaning Jesus' kingdom is distinct from the kingdom of the world that Pilate and the other religious leaders were fighting to uphold. This is what it means. And, uh, and, and it is not through the use of force that his kingdom will be established, right? My people, otherwise his followers would fight. The way that Jesus' kingdom will be established, we will learn just a couple pages later, will be through a defining act of self-sacrificial love on the cross. And Jesus models this kind of self-sacrificial, laying down of his life version of what it looks like to establish his kingdom to his very dying breath. Asking God to forgive the centurions who are mockingly crucifying him. Extending forgiveness to the thief on the cross that hang next hangs next to him, dying for his enemies, that his enemies may be provided with an opportunity to be forgiven for their sins and adopted into God's holy family. This is what Jesus models the whole way through. Now, the question we have this morning is what do we do with this teaching of Jesus? That his kingdom is not of this world. Because it's an interesting thing to say, and it might be a little hard for us to get our heads around is Jesus simply talking about a spiritual kingdom, right? Is this just a spiritual reality? This has to do with our hearts and our souls and has no real ramifications in the here and now. Does his kingdom have any real world impact? Does it affect the way I live? Does it affect the people around me? Should it have, uh, should it have an effect in our world in a tangible way? Because we, I don't know if you know this, but we live in the world, Right? Our lives are deeply affected by the systems of government and public policies that are enacted in this country and in other countries. So what are we to do? 
How are we to handle this teaching of Jesus? What are we to do with it? Are we simply to stop caring about our world or our country because Jesus says his kingdom is from another world and just kind of uh, withdraw, build little communes somewhere, get on a ship, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria or whatever, and sail to some far-off place and establish a Christian kingdom like the Puritans wanted to do? Actually, no, I don't think that's what Jesus is advocating for in this passage. Because he says, he says this other places, and this is, this is built out in the rest of the New Testament. But, but I think Jesus seems to say to, to Pilate and in other places that, that Jesus, his followers live at the ki- a kind of intersection between two kingdoms. We have a deal up there. We live at the intersection of two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of earth. This is kind of what it looks like, I think. You have the kingdom of the world that is earthly, which is its governments, our cultures, our systems of power, the way we organize our lives. And then you have the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of heaven on the other side. And that middle section, that middle slightly darker section, is I think where followers of Jesus live. I really do. At the intersection... We live in the kingdom of the world as kingdom of God people. That's where we live. We are citizens of a nation, right? But that is not our primary allegiance. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Our true citizenship, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.20, is in heaven, right? Or put another way, our true citizenship is is as kingdom of God people. So while we are called to care for and about our communities and our countries, we do not draw our primary sense of identity from being members of a nation. I think this is the natural implications of this. So I am an American. I'm thankful to God that I am American for the fact that I live here, was born here, and have had access to the privileges that an American has. But American is not my primary identity. For the follower of Jesus, our Christian identity trumps our national identity. If you are a follower of Jesus, no matter where you were born, your true identity, your true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And you are called to live out the values of of the kingdom no matter where you live. No matter what governmental structures you live under. Working towards kingdom of God ends wherever you are. Looking to see God's reconciling love manifest in people's hearts. Working to build the kingdom of Jesus through self-sacrificial acts of love. This is the primary responsibility. For those of us who follow Jesus and are a part of God's big global family, this is priority one. Right? This is our primary politic. But we are also citizens of the world. Right? We are citizens, technically, most of us in here probably, citizens of the United States of America. And as American citizens, we are both allowed and encouraged by Scripture to have influence in the political structures of our communities and our country. The prophet Jeremiah was speaking to the people of Israel. Now, the people of Israel had been taken off to exile. They had lived in their nation, but Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians, and they get taken off into exile. So they're in a foreign 
pagan country under the rule of a king who thought he was a god. And this is the instruction that Jeremiah gives to those, those exiles in Jeremiah 29.7. He says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Babylon, as I said, was this totally pagan, sinful, turned away from God. And yet the prophet, prophet instructs the people to work for the good of the city. To contribute to the flourishing of all people. To bring their wisdom, their ingenuity, their hard work to bear on the lives of the community. For the common good, for the good of all. And this, I believe, is what Christians are called to do as well. But we are called to do it in a way that does not confuse the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God. Now, I know this is technical, but, but follow me here. We are called to do it in a way that does not worship the political structures of our own particular nation, but instead worships the king, Jesus, above all, who will one day set up a kind of everlasting kingdom, the scriptures tell us. He will be kind of, um, it will, and it will be a, a kind of monarchy. It will be a kingdom that will never end. But for the time being, we live in a world that is broken, fallen even. A kingdom where people strive for power and authority. A, people, uh, a kingdom where people flir- uh, some people flourish and other people languish. A kingdom where some uh, people are corrupted by power and use coercion. And love pleasure. This is where we live in the here and now. And the temptation for us in our day, I think this is true. The temptation for our day, and this is specifically true for Americans, is that we live in a particularly good version of the kingdom of the world. Right? We have a lot of problems and we've made some mistakes. But by and large, we live in a version of government that has allowed us the freedom to flourish. Due in large part to the influence of Christian moral principles. And while this is good, it also poses a problem for us. Because when you live in a relatively good version of the kingdom of the world, it is easy to confuse it for the kingdom of God. But it is not. And it will never be. Not until Jesus establishes his kingdom. All the kingdoms of the world, all the nations of the earth will one day be brought under the authority of King Jesus and they will all cease. And the Bible tells us that these nations, these systems of power will actually be judged, which is sobering. But here's the point. If you were a Chinese Christian or a Russian Christian or a Venezuelan Christian, your calling would be the same as it is as an American Christian. Your primary calling would be to build the kingdom of God. That's first and foremost. To live in the world but not be of it. To work hard to see people flourish and to invite them into God's family. To be his kingdom citizens. And the political structures of the world, while important, are not ultimate. Does this make sense? If we live in a, in a country that was, uh, that was much worse off than the one we live in today... If our lives were not as good as they, most of our lives are here this morning, our purpose as Christians would be the same. It would be no different. And so the question is, 
what are we to do, practically speaking, with this two kingdoms idea? Because it does get a little heady, doesn't it? How practically should I approach politics? Nick, just tell me who to vote for, right? Just do it. Come on. I am barred by the IRS in doing so, right? I have, a, I have been legally barred from doing that. But I do, I do have a couple just kind of practical implications this morning for us from this text that I think are really uh, just practical ways of, uh, to help us kind of navigate the tension that it is of living in the confluence of these two kingdoms. All right? So here's uh, practical implication number one. They ask your opinion. Uh, they ask, give your opinion. They ask your opinion, you can give it. Right? We live in America where they ask our opinion. <laughs> That's good. Give it, right? But know that it's an opinion. There's no amens there. I'm worried about it. Uh, go vote. Go vote, right? Give your money to a candidate if you'd like. Be politically active to a point. But don't make the mistake of making your political opinion a little g-gospel in your life, Right? And don't allow your opinion on a political issue to cut you off from relationship with others, especially relationship with other kingdom of God people, right? Because our opinions about the structuring of the kingdom of the world are not ultimate and not nearly as important as we often think, especially when seen in light of eternity, right, in light of history. But, we, uh, but what we do for the kingdom of God will last eternally, forever. You know, whatever the current tax rate is, whatever, what, whatever amount of money you pay in taxes, like this year, that's not going to last forever. <laughs> Just some people are saying, praise God, right? Like, it's not going to last forever. It is temporal. What is done for the kingdom of God is eternal. And that kind of... Uh, that perspective, that kingdom of God perspective is very, very important when we come into the political sphere in our communities. It will, our opinions about the structuring of the kingdom of the world are not ultimate. They will not last forever. They will pass away. But here's the good part. The kingdom of our Lord will never pass away. The government that is established on his shoulders will never be swept under the rug. We are headed towards a future, and that is a kingdom of God future. It is not a kingdoms of this world future. Every injustice that was done in the kingdom of the world will be judged by the kingdom of God. Every, uh, every broken thing will be put right. Every, every, every part of our hearts that is partial and broken will be restored in the kingdom of God. And our world right now has become so polarized and so partisan because people think that their political opinion is of ultimate importance, right? That it is an ultimate thing when it is somewhere below ultimate. It is important. It does affect people's lives. And kingdom of God people should weigh in but we should not view the way we weigh in as being an ultimate thing. We should keep it in a kind of balance. And that balance lends to a kind of measured approach 
where we don't demonize people, we don't defame people, we don't hold our opinions so tightly that they become a kind of God to us, but rather we hold them in an open-handed way, seeking the betterment, the common good of our neighbors, trying to love our neighbors through the way we leverage our opinion politically. That's what our calling is, not to hold our political opinions over their heads to make them do something in order that we can have the type of place that we want to have. No, kingdom of God people come under people with their opinions to serve people, to love people, to work for the common good. This is what we do. We do not wield our power over people's heads in order to make them do things. We rather come under them to serve them in a self-sacrificial manner, just like Jesus did. This is what kingdom of God people do. I'm getting into next week's sermon right now, so I'm going to move on. That's number one. Implication number two. Learn to live in the tension. This is hard, guys. It's hard. Learn to live in the tension. We live at the confluence of two kingdoms. And that will inevitably create a kind of tension, right? Things will not be as you would want them to be. And they never will, right? And though, it, though we do live in a nation where they ask your opinion and you can give it, and to a certain extent you can even work to see your opinion brought to bear on people's lives for their betterment and for their flourishing. But the reality is, is no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you do, no matter how much energy you spill trying to make the kingdom of the world the kingdom of God, it will never be. Or kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God, it will never be, right? It won't. And so we will always live in this tension we will always live in this with a kind of partial, in, in the kind of partiality. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know this tension because you experience it in your own heart, right? God is calling you to be a certain type of person, and you know the ways in which you're not that type of person, and there's a tension in your heart, and that same tension in some real and true sense re res uh, resides in our culture as well. And we, as followers of Jesus in our current cultural climate, we have to grow slightly more comfortable with the tension that we live in there. We have to grow more comfortable with the fact that some people will not hold the same opinions we do politically. That some people who agree on the kingdom of God stuff will not have the same opinion about the way the kingdom of God stuff should be interpreted into the kingdom of the world. Uh-oh. Right? You might think the tax rate should be X, and someone might think the tax rate should be X, right? And you might disagree about that. Some Christians, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into it here, so please have mercy and grace, right? Our church is literally called Grace Community. Just <laughs> reminding you that. Some Christians might think universal health care is a good idea. Some Christians think that a free market approach to, to health care is a good idea, Right? This is, if you want to talk to me afterwards, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> right? That is an opinion about the way kingdom values should be interpreted into the kingdom of the world. And we can disagree. Right? But we have to have the kingdom of, the kingdom of God values on the same level. Right? And that is that we affirm the value of every human life. That, that, that every human life is desperately loved by God, and we want to work together to affirm that the value of every human life, right? That's a kingdom of God value. But the way that that value is interpreted in our political vote and in our voice might be a little bit different. But we cannot demonize the other, right? We must have a, say it with me, conversation. <laughs> and this is good. 
and this is good. You know, Tim Keller, uh, in an article he wrote for the New York Times, Tim Keller is a, is a pastor in New York City. He wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, I think a year or two ago, about this very issue. I'd encourage you to go look at it and read it. Speaking about the tension that we live in as kingdom of God people, as Christians in the world, says this. So Christians are pushed towards two main options, he says. One is to withdraw and try to be apolitical. The second is to uh, assimilate and fully adopt one party's whole, whole package in order to have uh, your place at the table. Neither of these options is valid. In the Good Samaritan parable uh, told in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus points us to a man risking his life to give uh, material help to someone of a different race and religion. Jesus forbids us to withdraw help from our neighbors. And this will inevitably require that we participate in political processes. If we experience exclusion and even persecution for doing so, uh, we are assured that God is with us and that some will see our good deeds and glorify God. If we are only offensive or only attractive to the world and not, uh, and not both, we can be sure we are failing to live as we ought. To close, to live in this tension, this kingdom of God versus kingdom of the world tension, is to be like Jesus, right? And, and Keller says it here, uh, to, be both, uh, to be both offensive and attractive. <laughs> hard, hard to hold those things in balance, but I think it's true. To not be able to be 100% pegged down all the time. To not buy in to the, what the culture tells us, that we have to be all one way or all another way. Because the kingdom of God is God's way. And if you are a follower of Jesus in this place, you are called to be a kingdom of God person. Right? And so no matter, no matter the narratives and the camps and the schools and the parties that the, that the kingdom of the world tries to break us up into, tries to separate us, kingdom of God people must resist that separation and live in a kind of tension. And that is not hard. That is not easy. It turns out to be very, very difficult. But that's life, right? That's life. And as kingdom of God people, we are to work within the context of our current world to see the kingdom of God move forward in all its beauty, in all its glory, in all its goodness, in all its love. And if we get, and if our eyes are drawn away from that to a kind of lower order conversation, if our hearts are constantly um, pulled towards a kingdom of the world conversation and, and our focus is taken off a kingdom of God conversation, then we have allowed ourselves to be drawn away from what truly matters. And so my prayer for you today as we leave is that you would in this culture where this is incredibly difficult, you would step in just a little bit more this week into what it means to be a kingdom of God person. That if you're in this place and your heart is a little too moved by the narratives of the kingdom of the world, if you find your hands are gripping a little too tightly to a version of the kingdom of the world that you think is better than another version of the kingdom of the world, and that has caused you to take your eyes off the kingdom of God, that you would loosen your grip just a little bit. And that you would find in that place a place of freedom and a place of joy and a place of purpose that will last 
forever, forever. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we know this is hard. We know this is nuanced. We know this is difficult. We know that we live in a culture that is working against this perspective. But Jesus, we pray today for the grace to be your kingdom people in the world, to be about your kingdom business, to participate in the structures of this world with grace and with love, to bring our opinions to bear in the world for the flourishing of other people so that other people would know and experience your love and your grace. And we pray today that as we embark on an election year, that our posture would be like the posture of Jesus, that people would not necessarily be know, know how to fit us into a box, that people would not know how, they wouldn't even know necessarily how to make sense of us because our positions and our opinions are so counter the, the extreme nature of our current political climate. I pray above all that you would make us a people of love in a culture of moral outrage, that you would make us a people of peace in a culture <laughs> of violence, that you would make us a Jesus people for the sake of the world. And we pray it right now in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. All right. Week one down, guys. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.